interesting throughout the Psalms, the wide range of topics that get included and what we learn about ourselves and about the Lord as we go through these. And so in Psalm 37, we find this idea of a continual need to trust in the Lord. We can trust in Him initially for our salvation, and we are often challenged in our trust in God throughout our lives. And so this is a reminder for us to continue to trust in the Lord. So I believe that one of the greatest challenges that we have in our walk with the Lord is to learn how to continue to trust Him month after month and year after year, difficulty after difficulty and hardship after hardship. The reason that I believe that is one of the great challenges that we have in our faith is it because we consistently see the challenge in the Word to continue to trust in Him. Difficulty and hardship and unwanted circumstances can sometimes challenge our faith in the sovereignty of God. Now, the sovereignty of God means this. God rules all the time. Nothing changes that. He has always ruled. He always will rule. And in the midst of our lives, when things are very difficult, we can forget or doubt or wonder if perhaps God is still on His throne. And so the Psalms will remind us that we can never forget the reality that God reigns from His throne. Through hardship and difficulty, we can also forget that the Bible teaches us that we will be treated poorly by the world and by those who are held captive to the powers that dominate the world that we live in. We read verses like 2 Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God and your perseverance and faith in the midst of your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Listen to this. This is a plan. Excuse me. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. We are going to suffer in this world at the hands of many different things, and sometimes when we suffer, we begin to question the sovereignty of God, and so we again find this need to continue to trust in Him. We read these words of Jesus in John 16:33. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. The promise of peace in the midst of great tribulation, never wandering from our faith in Christ, never doubting our ability to fully trust in Him. So we can be mistreated, spoken poorly of, persecuted, insulted, rejected by those who want nothing to do with us or the God that we serve. Our ability to continue trusting in God can be difficult when we're doing our very best to serve Him and we seem to be suffering for it. Have you ever asked yourself why that happens to you, God? I'm living for you as fully and completely as I know how, and yet I'm suffering for this? That doesn't seem right to me. Well, it is right. We are going to suffer because we are going to serve the Lord. We observe the lives of those who have rejected God, and they seem to be happy. They seem to be successful. They seem to have everything that the world would offer, and they are thoroughly enjoying their lives. So the psalm speaks to this reality and reminds us that God is still in control and we continue to trust in Him without being concerned about the lives of others. Now there's no indication when this psalm is written, what circumstances brought it about, only that it is a psalm of David. And so in Psalm 37, which is a very lengthy psalm, we're only going to look at the first seven verses. 
Here's what the Word of God says to us today. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him and He will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Would you pray with me very quickly, please? Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. We submit ourselves to its authority. We thank You that this is You speaking to us today, to our need. And we pray, Father, that You would capture our heart's attention in such a way that we would be mindful of all that Your Word says to us. We continue to claim the promise, Father, that Your Word would not return back to You void. And so we ask, God, that You would accomplish in our hearts individually what You intend through the teaching of Your Word. Would You multiply its truth in our lives apart from anything that is said as Your Spirit works in and through us, Your servants. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in these verses, there are seven instructions that we're going to look at. The first two are the negative instructions. Now, when we hear the word negative instructions, it only means that it's something that we are not supposed to do. It doesn't mean that it's something bad. It means it's something that we are not supposed to do as the children of God. So the first one, very simply, don't be angry. Verse 1a, do not fret because of evildoers. The word fret here is literally to burn or to be kindled with anger. Now, when we read the word fret, Typically, we think that means to be worrisome or to be anxious about something. But the Hebrew word, that's not what it means. It means to be burning with anger. Do not be angry because of evildoers. We can look at the success of the lost and we can sometimes get angry. They have everything I think I need to make my life better than it is. They live their lives as objectors of the faith, wanting nothing to do with the God that we have given our lives to. And we recognize that some of the wealthiest and some of the most influential people in our world are staunchly and unashamedly opposed to Christ. You think about the entertainment industry. It is absolutely filled with men and women who live the life of luxury And they influence countless numbers of people, and all the while, they live a a life of absolute immorality. I don't know if you've noticed this, but when you see a celebrity who is advertised in some way, you sometimes see the word, they are musician, composer, and influencer. Have you ever seen that? Do you know what that means? It means they have a bunch of people who follow them on social media, who listen to everything they say, who model their lives after this individual who is an objector of the faith, hoping that in some way, being quote-unquote influenced by this person is going to improve their life. Have you wondered why this life of immorality that used to be hidden and secretive has just exploded? It's absolutely everywhere. It's because of people like this who live a life of luxury, who are admired for their skill or their ability, 
And they live this life of immorality. And they influence others to do the same. And we look at their lives and we think, God, how could you bless them that way? How could you allow them to have all these things? And look at poor pitiful me who's doing the very best I can to live a life of faith. And I feel like I'm getting the short end of the step. We can get angry as we look at the lives of other people. We see evil and abundance in politics and in business. They get all the power, they get all the prestige, and they step on people and over people to get where they want to go. And as we look at people like that, it can feel wrong and unfair, and we can get angry. If that isn't true, then why would the Scripture confront us with this reality and tell us to not get angry because of the evildoers? Asaph, one of the writers in the Psalms, wrote this in Psalm 73, For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Now this was Asaph's temporary carnal perspective on the evildoers around him as he looked at them flourishing and what the world had to offer. And I believe it's our natural inclination to look at others around us and say, why not me? What's wrong with me? I'm better than they are. And we can allow that to develop this kindling of anger in our hearts if we're not aware that it's taking place. Now, as we'll see in a minute, this seeming success is short-lived and in reality just a mirage. So the second negative instruction we find is don't be jealous. Verse 1b, be not envious toward wrongdoers. So envious means jealous, and a wrongdoer is a softer word for an evildoer, but they are in the same category. They are people that have rejected God and have determined to live their lives for themselves and to themselves. And as we look at their lives, we can get jealous because all the things that we think we need in order to make our lives better, those evil people have. Why should they get the promotion? Why should they get the big house or the new car? Why don't they seem to struggle? Why don't they seem to suffer? And if we get fixated on the prosperity of other people, we will likely get angry or jealous at their success And it can cause us to question the goodness and the blessings that are ours from the Lord. Again, if this isn't our potential, then why would Scripture confront us this way? Now, as I said just a second ago, this is just a mirage. This whole thing isn't as joyful as it might seem on the surface. The reason is that abundance is temporary. Verse 2 says, For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Now this is an analogy from the Middle East. David, being a shepherd, was very familiar with the patterns of rain and growth and famine and wilderness. And so it's very common in the Middle East for the early spring rains to cause a lush green grass to appear absolutely everywhere. And it was a shepherd's responsibility to take the sheep to those places where they could feed. But in late spring and summer, when the heat began to come and the rain was not coming, all of that green grass would disappear just as quickly 
as it came. So the psalmist is telling us the same thing will happen to the ungodly. Their lives won't stand up to adversity and ultimately it's not going to stand up to God's judgment. We must constantly remind ourselves that this life is temporary. It isn't about the physical world that we live in. It isn't about the possessions that we acquire. It isn't about the physical things that add some new fun element to our lives. Our lives are to be about the Lord Jesus Christ, what He's done for us, and how we live that out in our lives in such a way that it pleases Him. We are to live a steadfast commitment to a holy and righteous God, which is the context of the positive instructions we see in the following verses. Instead of getting angry or getting jealous at the seeming success of the evildoer or the wrongdoer around us, we're to focus on these positive instructions that we get from God in His Word. So the positive instructions we're going to look at, there's five of these. And the first one is very simply this, trust in the Lord. Verse 3 says, trust in the Lord and do good. It's pretty simple, right? The life of faith is a life of faith. The life of faith that we live is a life that is to continually trust in the Lord regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in, regardless of the seeming prosperity of the evildoer around us. An angry heart or a jealous heart is not a trusting heart. Rather than being focused on ourselves and what we don't have, our heart is to trust in the Lord and to do good. We are to trust in His goodness. We are to trust in His sovereignty. We are to trust in His faithfulness to us. Instead of being preoccupied with the abundance that may exist in the lives of others around us, we are to be focused on trusting God and doing good. The doing good here is doing what God would have us to do as He leads us and He asks us to serve Him and to serve others. So let me ask you this question. It's very practical. How much good will we do if our heart is angry and jealous at the abundance that other people are enjoying in their life. Will we be trusting in the Lord? Will our heart be inclined to do good? Probably not, because it is an antithesis to trusting in God, this angry heart, this jealous heart. Secondly, not only are we to trust in the Lord, we are to remain in the Lord. Verse 3b, dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Now, for the nation of Israel, this this injection of the land here is a reminder of, for the Jew, living in the promised land was always the ultimate goal. They were brought out of Egypt to dwell in the promised land. They were stuck in the wilderness and longed for the promised land. Through Joshua and David, they enjoyed the promised land and they continued to expand its boundaries But there's also this reality that when difficult times came, there was a temptation by some to leave the promised land and to seek prosperity and God's blessing in other places. To leave the land would be to leave the fulfillment of God's provision for His people. 
If God were to say to the nation of Israel, I have given to you this land, every place your foot sets is for you to possess, and then they say, we don't want to live here anymore. They are in fact rejecting the provision that God has made for them in and through this promised land. It would be tantamount to saying that God's provision couldn't be trusted and wasn't as good as that which is on the other side. It's the grass is always greener on the other side of the road. Have you ever said that? Have you ever thought that? I have. And I've actually crossed the street and looked in the lawn and I said, boy, there's a lot of weeds here I couldn't see from over there. It's not so good. It's not as good as I thought it was going to be. So for us today, to dwell in the land would simply mean to remain in the Lord, to be confident in His promises and in His provision. Now, I believe that the most special promise that God makes to His people is what we've already talked about through these Psalms. It is the promise of His presence in us. To always be with us. To never leave us or forsake us. The reality that God has indwelt our spirits with Himself to be in us forever. I believe that's the greatest promise that we can claim as God's children. Now, we can argue about that, and that's just my own personal perspective. But I believe the promise of God's presence in our lives ought to make all the difference in our lives, knowing that there's no place that we can go that He isn't already there. Not only because He is omnipresent, but because He is with us inside of us. So the phrase here, to cultivate faithfulness, literally means to feed on His faithfulness. Think about that. Dwell in the land that God has placed you in and feed yourself on His faithfulness. Rather than feeding ourselves on what we do not have and what we think we really need, we are to feast on the faithfulness of God. So let me ask you the question. In what ways has God been faithful to you? Most of us can begin in, in our minds to make a list of all the ways that God has been faithful to us. And so the instruction here is to feed yourselves on the faithfulness of God rather than being distracted at the seeming prosperity of other people, most particularly the evildoer or the wrongdoer. I believe that if we, are to f- if we feed on the faithfulness of God, we will possess a heart that is thankful, a heart that is rejoicing, and ultimately a heart that is at peace with where God has placed us at this point in time in our lives. Contentment is always a struggle for us because we, in our culture we, there's always something more. There's one more thing. One more toy, one more gadget, one more improvement, one more something. And it's elusive. We never ever capture that thing that brings to us the ultimate satisfaction that we desire in our life. So we are to remain in the Lord. We are to feast on His faithfulness. Number three, we are to delight in the Lord. What it says in verse four, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now if you take that verse out of context, it's going to mean something that the author did not intend it to mean. To delight in the Lord means that we consciously choose to focus on the goodness and on the faithfulness of God. It is to rejoice in His blessings. 
It is to rejoice in the one who blesses. It is to find great pleasure in the person of God. Notice that it says that you are to delight yourself in the Lord. It's relationship-centered. It's not just to rejoice or to delight in what the Lord has given you. It is to delight in the person of God Himself. If we are consumed by what we do not have, we will ignore the rich blessings that we have in our relationship with God and in Christ. So, I was thinking about listing out all of the reasons that we could delight ourselves in the Lord. And as I began to start this, I decided I just want to read a somewhat lengthy passage of Scripture that I think encapsulates why we should be able to delight ourselves in the Lord in spite of anything else that God has blessed us with. Read along with me as we look at Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now Paul begins to explain some of these. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the richness, to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Let me ask you, can we delight in the Lord because of what He has done for us through Christ in this personal relationship that He has blessed us with according to His riches and glory? You better believe it. Is this not more valuable than any earthly possession that we could add to our collection? Is it not more valuable than a shiny new car? Is it not greater than the vacation of all vacations? You see, when we fixate on who God is and what God has done and delight ourselves in His person, what we have and what we don't have will not even be a consideration for us. We are to delight ourselves in the Lord. This is not a promise to fill our lives with things because it says to delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. If we are delighting ourselves in the Lord and what He has done for us and in His presence, what is our heart going to be fixed on? Not cars, not boats, not motorcycles, not clothes, not the next fad, not the next toy. It's going to be focused on Him. The greatest desire of our heart should be to know Him better, to rejoice in Him more fully, and to live before Him more humbly. You see, if that is the desire of our heart, God is going 
to bless us with that experience. You know, those that are in the health and wealth prosperity message will quote a verse like this and just basically teach you that if you delight yourself, Lord, He's going to give you all the stuff you want. And it's just not the truth. It's not what God's Word means when it says, delight yourself in the Lord, He will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in your relationship with Him, and He will deepen that relationship in such a way that it will be the most important thing to you. Number four, submit to the Lord. Verse five reads, commit your way to the Lord, trust also in Him, and He will do it. So the result of trusting in God and delighting in God is to commit oneself to God. But the word commit here is different than we might think. Literally, it means to roll away. It's the idea, in context of this psalm, that we are to roll away our anger, our jealousy, our nagging questions, our negative feelings and concerns of justice, and we are to submit them to the Lord. We are to roll them away to the Lord. So the question is, is God just? As you think about those negative feelings, that anger, that resentment that you might have over the wrongdoers or the evildoers, is God just? Will God deal with the ungodly? Will God deal with our persecutors? Will God deal with those who mistreat us and take advantage of us? The answer to that question is a resounding yes. God is just, and God will deal with these people. We are to trust in Him, we are to submit to His sovereignty, and we are to wait for God to act. Not only will He exact His sovereignty over His rejectors, He also sovereignly rules over our lives, His children, and will eventually act on our behalf. Do you believe God will do that? We have to believe that God will do that. We are to submit ourselves to Him. We are to roll all these things that are weighing on our shoulders, bogging down our lives, roll them off to the Lord, trust Him, and He will do it. Verse 6, He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Now, this has, for the most part, an eschatological application to it. God may bring your righteousness to the light in the here and now. He may not. But eventually God will bring forth our righteousness and our judgment as the noonday. So this has, the, as I mentioned, the eschatological application to it. So at some point, all, at some unknown point in the future, God is going to glorify His children and He will exact His justness on the evildoer or the wrongdoer. Now there's an example of this we're going to take a very brief look at. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus was asked to explain the parable of the tares and the wheat to his disciples. The tares and the wheat are those that seem to be the righteous, but they're really not. The wheat is the righteous, and they are mixed together, whether it be in the church or in the world. And so his disciples asked him to explain what that meant. So Jesus does in Matthew chapter 13, verses 37 to 43. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. And the field is the world, and as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. 
And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out his kingdom, out of his kingdom, all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And here's the application. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun, and the kingdom of their father, he who has ears, let him hear. So verse 43 and Matthew 13 is Jesus quoting from the book of Daniel, but it's a very similar phrase to what we see in verse 6 of our psalm here, is that our righteousness will shine forth in our judgment as the noonday. We must roll on to the Lord our concerns about how He will exact justice over the evildoer, who in our perspective are flourishing, Allow Him to reveal the glory of Himself that resides in us as His children in some unknown point in the future. We are to trust in that. We are to submit ourselves to that. And number five, we are to rest in the Lord. There's this deepening progression that I believe we see here. And this final one is to rest in the Lord. Verse 7a, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. That word rest means exactly what you would expect it to mean. It is to be still. In context of having a jealous heart or a heart that is being kindled to anger, we are to roll these things off to the Lord and we are to rest in him, to be still in him. It means that we aren't trying to take action. We aren't resting. We are resting in the sovereignty of God and His ability to work out His plans on His timetable that we are not aware of, but we are confident of His impending justness being applied into the world that He created and to the world that He rules over. You see, I believe the epitome of trust in the Lord is the ability to rest in the Lord. It means we aren't anxious. It means that we aren't worked up. It means we aren't consumed with how the ungodly are living their lives. We are simply letting God be God and in our spirits being still and resting in His eventual sovereign rule being exacted out over the world that He created. Our waiting is an indication, excuse me, is an indication of our trusting. Verse 7b, do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of, the man who, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. And so this is a repetition here of verse 1. We know what will happen at the end time. We don't need to take matters into our, our own hands. We don't need to get preoccupied with what God is or isn't doing. We are to wait on the Lord. We are to be still in the Lord and our relationship with him, allowing him to be the sovereign God that He is and not getting worked up over what we think we need or what we don't have that we would like to have. I'll tell you, it's a great challenge to be still in the Lord, isn't it? We are an impatient people. We want now. We want it to be resolved now. But it doesn't work that way. We have to continue to learn to trust in the Lord, 
to delight ourselves in him, to submit ourselves to him, and then to find peace in him as our hearts are still and as we rest. Let's pray. Father, it isn't hard for us to recognize how we can get worked up over things going on in our lives. And we can look at the lives of others around us, wicked people, evil, mean people, who by our account don't deserve the the air that they breathe. Our desire to see you bring justness to them immediately. And in that, Father, we forget how far we have fallen. We forget how needy we are of the grace that you've given to us. Would you continue to teach us how we can trust you, how we can find rest and peace in you? Would you calm our hearts and help us to celebrate and focus on the God that you are, to feed on your faithfulness, to dwell in the land, to remain in you, as opposed to getting preoccupied with the temporal nature of this world that we live in. Father, speak to us as we sing. Bring these words back to our mind throughout the rest of this week. And may it be a a challenge to us to find peace in the person of God who dwells within us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.